Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It used to be in abundance in Long Island Sound 90 years ago. We're talking about eelgrass. We have an exclusive report with Save the Sound and Save Environmental to see whether their efforts to repopulate eelgrass have been successful. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. In our final report for National Ocean Month, we have an exclusive for you. Eelgrass used to grow abundantly in Long Island Sound, but over the years it's disappeared in many areas for a variety of reasons. It may not sound important, but in fact eelgrass has many benefits to the sound and the creatures that live in it and around it. I took a boat ride with Save the Sound's Long Island soundkeeper Bill Lucy and associate soundkeeper Emma DeLugri and Save Environmental's Rob Vassaluth to Smithtown Bay on the Sound to find out the latest on theirs and other agencies' efforts to bring back the eelgrass to more of Long Island Sound. We are going out across Long Island Sound today to take a look at some eelgrass which you and other select team members glued onto the back of clams and dropped, I believe, November of last year. What are you hoping to possibly see today? So if we had a successful planting, what we're hoping to see today is at least a small cluster of eelgrass with shoots about one to two inches in height right now. There's a lot of environmental factors we have to consider when we're going to check on this site. So we dropped them in November of 2022. We're going out now. It's May 2023. But once the clams are dropped into the water, there's a potential of them to roll around and not burrow immediately. The tides can push them, wind can push them, stuff like that. They also have predators to deal with. So hopefully, at least a significant number of the clams were able to burrow underneath the sediment, and then the eelgrass will start growing. Rob of Save Environmental has tested out this method before. He had a site in Shinnecock Bay with the Nature Conservancy. They did a planting about two years ago. And he just went out two weeks ago to check on that, and they had a significant amount of eelgrass growing. I would say it probably was about like almost a foot tall at this point. So that was looking really good, so we're hoping to see similar conditions today. The water quality conditions at every site are different as well, so we really are just testing out this method, seeing where it will work. Hopefully it's looking good. Why are certain parts of Long Island Sound devoid of eelgrass? Because, I mean, you found this eelgrass from a very sort of like vibrant field at mm. Fisher's Island, I yeah. believe. So why are other parts of Long Island Sound devoid of, of eelgrass? What's causing the issue there? Yeah, so Fisher's Island is really the last great eelgrass meadow in the Sound. I believe they house about 98% of Long Island Sound's eelgrass at this point. It used to be along the entire coastline. 
And there's a, like a long, rich history of eelgrass in the Long Island Sound. So what happened was in the 1930s, there was a wasting disease that killed off a significant amount of eelgrass. And then eventually the plant rebounded, but it really was limited to the eastern sound. So there is still a few small eelgrass beds, but, you know, there's a lot of water quality factors that are affecting that, as well as competition with human use. So we have probably the most significant one that's causing the decline of eelgrass is rising water temperature. I believe when it's above 25 degrees Celsius it will cause eelgrass to completely die off. They can't survive past that condition. And they really optimally need much lower water temperatures to reproduce. So that's kind of a big issue. And then, you know, we have excessive nutrients in the water causing algal blooms. Then the algae can grow over the eelgrass and smother it. So that's a big issue. Low dissolved oxygen. And then people anchoring in eelgrass meadows can cause some of them to rip up. Light availability is a big factor. Eelgrass needs a significant amount of light to grow. So when there's excessive nutrients and an algal bloom growing over it, then it's not getting enough light to continue growing. So that can be a big problem as well. And then you have competition with human use um, in different eelgrass meadows, so shellfish harvesting, stuff like that. So something we're kind of looking into is working more with shellfish farmers to try and use part of their lease to grow eelgrass in part of their lease where that maybe they weren't even shellfishing anyway. So kind of trying to come up with creative solutions to save this plant. The big question, I suppose, is why is it so important to replace this eelgrass? What's so important that we need the eelgrass back there? So eelgrass has so many ecosystem services that are really important for cleaning up our waterways. But I'd say the most important one is carbon sequestration. Bill knows this stat better than me. Bill, what's the stat about eelgrass and tropical rainforests? So the carbon sequestration rates for eelgrass are significant. They're not as high as, say, mangrove swamps, but the unique nature of eelgrass that it's a submerged aquatic vegetation, we call them SAVs, is that they put the carbon that they get out of the water into the sediment. And as sediment uh, rates accumulate, that carbon gets buried at the bottom of the sound, at the bottom of the ocean. We're hoping to get some results fairly soon. My understanding is Stony Brook University, Brad Peterson, with some support from the Nature Conservancy, are looking at carbon sequestration rates here locally. So what that'll do is give us an idea of exactly what the square meter of eelgrass will pull out of the water and sink to the bottom and take it out of the carbon cycle. And, you know, the reason that's important is that as all our exhaust and all our emissions and natural sources of carbon dioxide accumulate, they eventually can overwhelm the buffering capacity of our world's oceans. And what that does is it decreases the pH, makes it more acidic. They're still basic, but what ends up happening at that point is when you have baby crabs, baby lobsters, baby oysters, all in larval form, they're very delicate. And if they're not able to increase their carbon to build their shells, they can suffer predation and disease and all kinds of things. So that that carbon sequestration that Emma mentioned is a big part of this. So they're super important and they're a little bit like the trees that we have on land, you know, sucking in all the the carbon dioxide sort of thing. So they really are. I mean, it's like for a little grass, it's it's a super important sort of like part of the environment. Yeah, your grass is an unsung hero. You don't see it usually unless it's at low tide or pieces wash up on the beach. And we've lost a lot of it globally. And what we really need to do is figure out what the limiting factors are for each area and address those if we can. And that, that's what we're doing here. 
Eelgrass is also really important for nursery habitat. It, you can imagine all the seahorses and the baby fish all hiding in the forest, their little forest of grass that keeps them away from predators. And I know in my time in Alaska, it was really amazing uh, to watch the herring spawn on the eelgrass because herring eggs, uh, saltwater herring, their eggs are adhesive. So they'll lay them over kelp and seagrass and they'll build up layers. And that's where all the larvae hatch from. So yeah, for forage fish, for uh, predatory fish that are uh, in their young stage, it's an incredible habitat. And the sound has just had a lot of issues with pollution. We've had years, decades of sewage running into the sound, blocking the light, changing the bottom. That's another component we need to look at is the bottom type. So there's a habitat suitability model, and that's for picking sites that are good for restoration. They're developed by Cornell and Yukon. And one of the factors they look at is the ratio of clay to sand in the bottom. If you have this mucky harbor with the black mud from too many years of sewage or leaf or uh, grass clippings, all that blowing into the sound, you just don't have a good substrate for the eelgrass seeds to grow in. Plus, those are typically anoxic seasonally, so they'll just choke them out. So we're looking to get that updated. The same group of researchers at UConn and at Stony Brook University and at Cornell Extension out in Suffolk County are all putting their minds together, and they're going to update you know, where it's too hot, where it's too mucky, where mama bear, papa bear, baby bear, where it's just right to put the put the eelgrass. So the beauty of this method that Rob Vasilis has, has developed is it's simple. We go out and get the, the seeds, which is a process of diving on them, but then we just glue them to the clams, hold them, and you could just throw a handful over a canary in a coal mine and see if it works. Now, we're working on getting permits to make this uh a regular occurrence because one of the fears of the shellfish industry, of course, the regulators, is that we are spreading disease. So we will only be using hatchery clams that have a clean bill of health come from a certified hatchery. There may be in the future some opportunity to use local clams, but that adds another step where you have to dig the clams up and put them back in. We're talking to Rob Veseluth of Save Environmental. You're one of the divers here today, Rob, but also you're sort of the architect of this eelgrass project. Tell us how this all came about. I uh, decided to figure out a way to plant this eelgrass with the machine. kind of knew there was never a machine in the world that, that planted seagrass. And there were some other people that had tried to build a machine, and they, they, they were all failures. And I was like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. You have to give a little bit of background for the listeners. You have a background in engineering, so just talk to us a little bit about that. I grew up, uh, when I was a little kid, I was always inventing things, and uh, I had a, my father was a machinist, and I learned a little bit about tools from him. I was always creating something. I was always making mischief with whatever I was making, and uh, I had an uncle that picked up on that, and he was an engineer scientist, and uh, he spent his life mining for that engineer that was going to solve the world's problems, you know, invent something that's never been invented before. And he always talked to me. Every time we went, the families got together, he always talked in my ear. And he told me I was going to do this. He didn't, not specifically eelgrass, but he said that, you know, people that are inventive are very rare and, and I should do something good with it. 
As we were coming over here, we should again just paint a picture for our listeners. We are sat on Long Island Sound, the beautiful Long Island Sound. It is a gorgeous day today. I'm guessing this is like optimal diving weather. I mean, the sun is shining. We couldn't ask for anything better. This is the spot. We're in the right depth. You were saying as well while we were coming over here, this is this is your backyard. This is where you grew up. Yeah, this is my backyard. And, um, you know, some people are like, why did Rob pick this spot? My father had seen eel grass back in the 50s when he used to come out from the city before he lived out here. He said there was some out here. Through my research with, with eel grass, there's a, there's a fellow called uh, Robert Moses. He was a great public work builder. He named Sunken Meadow State Park Sunken Meadow State Park because when he came down to the beach and took a look at it, he saw underneath the waves was an underwater meadow. And that was back in the 1930s. And since then, all the eel grass disappeared. But the name stays. It's Sunken Meadow. It'll be the first time we'll get eelgrass back here in maybe 90 years. Tell us about this unique concept you came up with, because you were talking a little bit earlier in this interview about creating machine, and yeah, machines are great, but they can't do everything. And uh, you found out that um, there was another way called biomimicry. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it at the time, that's what it was. What I did was I, I studied these other machines that were failures, that used seeds. I realized they were just not doing it the natural way they were trying to invent the new way to plant seagrass seeds and i went after how does it work in nature and dispersal of seeds in nature is an amazing thing in itself so i started studying all the ways that the seed gets dispersed and, and gets buried into the sediment and one is from a duck sea ducks eat these seeds and they they might chomp a bunch but mostly they don't and they they can't digest them those possibly grow and they'll fall to the bottom and they'll have nitrate around them and uh, they'll grow and then turtles same thing So it's a a natural recruitment for eelgrass that's always been occurring. But the problem with eelgrass is there's no natural recruitment going on because there's no more turtles around, and they shot all the ducks. So there used to be about 5 to 10 million of these brant that just eat eelgrass. Now there's about 55,000. So that recruitment that was naturally occurring is gone. And then there was an eelgrass-wasting disease that took out all the eelgrass, and the seed bank was gone. Something that would come back... You know, maybe after hundreds of years of us people not being around anymore, it's just forcing it to come back a little earlier, you know, a, a successful means of planting. You know, I had to think of a concept to, you know, what's going to work? And then every once in a while, there'll be a clam that buries itself, and there'll be a seed that's sitting on the bottom, and it falls into that hole. Because clams are engineers, they dig holes. Those grow. And that's something I was able to work with. And that's where I thought, hey, what if I just uh, glued some seeds or taped some seeds to a clam and dropped it in the water? Would that work? And that's how that, you know, that's, that's, that was my epiphany, uh, my eureka moment. It's always the simplest things that often are the most effective, isn't it? Yeah, it, it seems that way. Uh, you know, well, the means weren't effective. Mother Nature's a far better engineer than us, us people. I just followed her lead. So between you and uh, the people who have saved the sound, I believe 80,000 seeds were sort of harvested. We might add... Uh, and we want to make this very clear for the listeners. Where you got the seeds from isn't about stripping away, you know, and damaging sort of like that area. It's about just harvesting what was there and now just putting it somewhere else so that, you know, you can grow this this eel grass, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, estimated uh, seed that's held in one acre of eel grass in a full meadow is about 10 million seeds. So uh, if we're taking uh, 100,000, it's um, not very noticeable. And the spot we were taking them from uh, far out on the, near Fisher's Island, it's a deep water area. 
around this eelgrass meadow. So all those seeds that fall off, they just go into the abyss and they don't really propagate anywhere. They need particular sort of like conditions, I understand. So they do need a, a fair amount of light. Just talk us through that because that's interesting in itself as well for a grass. It has a good germination rate, these seeds, you know, about 20%. It tells me if I get a, you know, five seeds glued onto one clam, I got the potential to put, put out one plant. So that's been my goal. So I'm using seeds that have 20% viability, and I'm using 10 seeds. So I might get two plants, and I'm going for the maximum. As far as doing this work, we laid it out. We spread it out far, but we made it tight, trying to make a, a, like a, a healthy little bed to defend against you know, the weather conditions and hydro, hydrodynamic forces and, and such. So a large planting is usually more successful than a small planting, which could get beat up. It's all about getting a foothold in. Today's exciting for you and the team here from Save the Sound because, as I understand it, where we are, you sort of planted these, propagated them, whatever terms you want to use, November of last year, 2022. We're now in May of 2023. This, I understand, is the first time you're going to see whether or not it's taken. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. The only thing I'm really worried about is if we're in the right spot. (laughs) I know we're going to find some eelgrass growing down there. You know, will it grow in this spot, you know, long term? We don't know. But that's the science of it. Does it grow or does it not grow? It, it works. It, work, it doesn't work. If it doesn't work here, it'd be the first time I failed doing this. I have four other open water plantings. They've all been successful. Last year's was no exception. Uh, well, two years ago uh, in the Great South Bay, withstood uh, winter storms, predation, algae blooms, large, significant algae blooms. Worst of all, it, the high temperatures, which is, is, you know, a new factor in the last decade is, is, is the high water temperatures and uh, eelgrass doesn't really survive above 75 degree water temperatures for a prolonged period of two weeks or more it kind of dies off but the great south bay last year was was 80 degrees plus for eight to ten weeks but we went over there and it's still growing maybe it could have been more i don't know the size of the area i gotta get a drone up in here but there's eelgrass growing everywhere everywhere in patches and it's producing seeds so it survived all of those things. Now, growing eelgrass is a quandary of problems. <laughs> There's one thing after another. If it isn't the algae blooms or bad water quality or the high water temperatures or predation, a swan could rip out all the eelgrass in a, in a day or rip out a whole acre. I know you're trying to get ready, uh, so we're going to let you get your uh, or your, your scuba diving so like, gear on and then we're going to so like, catch you once you come back up and uh, hopefully get from you and from emma so like what it is you see down there so we'll have a successful dive both of you thank you very much you know i'm pretty excited so bill we've got the two divers in the water just explain to us what we're what's happening right now so right now we have the coordinates from cornell cooperative extension for this outermost transect and we are in about 8.7 feet of water is the deeper the deeper edge of the experiment and what they're going to do, we got a direction where the transect lies, and they're going to swim along the bottom. The current, we're kind of mid-tide right now. The current's picking up a bit. But if they can get down close to the bottom and follow in that direction, hopefully they can run into the, the plants. Emron Rob, you've just come up. I know you're slight out of breath. Success. Successful. We found our transect, so we were able to see at least some of where our clams dropped in. So we're really happy about that. 
But you also, you also came up with a clam with a seed on this. So again, proof of concept. Yes, we did find an empty clam with our seed still glued onto it. So we know it's ours. We know we're in the right spot. And there was a small, small, maybe one and a half inch blade of grass growing off one of the clams. So really hopeful that when we come back later in the year, more of them will have sprouted by then. In a way, this is a historic moment because... Eelgrass has not grown here for 90 years in this area, correct? Yeah, and Rob probably knows more about that than me, but a lot of people thought that we wouldn't be able to grow eelgrass here in Smithtown Bay. So this is really, really great to see this, and I'm really optimistic about what's going to come. Emma, thank you. We're going to quickly ask Rob. So Rob, as we say, a proof of concept. You knew it worked. You've done it before. What's your reaction now? I wish it did 100,000. If it wasn't for Emma, we wouldn't have been finding anything today. I'm very thankful for Emma. I'm not surprised it's growing pretty ecstatic about it it's still early i understand in the season but the fact that you know emma was able to find in the in the waters you know just a little inch and a half sprout there i mean it's phenomenal makes looking uh, for a needle in a haystack like an easy task <laughs> it really does finding a needle in an ocean is what she did there's probably a tremendous amount more of it here we'll find the the debris field where where it goes over time which way it pushed from the storms we'll get more data as time goes on I understand as the waters are like warmed up a little bit and obviously as we you know maybe head towards July give it a few more weeks that this stuff can grow pretty quick so you hopefully you should come back and find a hell of a lot more of it yeah I would expect uh, the end of June to come back and then especially at the end of uh, September would be a great time to come back water's still a little warm we should really see the growth then and then if it survives it has a lot to overcome over here it has to you know the water gets a little cloudy over here so it has uh, light issues the temperature's good over here all year round for eelgrass, so uh, there's no algae plumes over here. If we could establish it here in this depth of water, it, uh, it's going to go. Well, congratulations to you and also to the team from Save the Sound for uh, basically, as we said, making history today. We found the first piece of eelgrass in 90 years for this area. Absolutely fantastic. It really is fantastic. and uh, It's an achievement. Small achievement, but it's an achievement. And more to come. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And just to reiterate, the eelgrass that was found growing in Smithtown Bay the day we recorded the interview made that the first time in almost 90 years that eelgrass has returned to that part of Long Island Sound. So it really was an historic moment for the team. And if you're interested in the eelgrass project and the work of Save the Sound and its partners, then visit their website for more details at savethesound.org. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. We are family owned and fully licensed. Is it time to earn your high school diploma and build a brighter future? EastCon's adult education programs can help. With EastCon's free NEDP program, there are no tests, and you can work at your own pace. You can even earn your diploma in as little as 6 to 12 months. An EastCon advisor will help you succeed from registration to graduation. Scheduling and locations are flexible. The program is free. Registration is open now. Go to eastcon.org and click on adult and community programs and build your brighter future today. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... 
For over 35 years, Eastern Connecticut Hematology and Oncology, or ECHO, has served as the leading independent cancer care provider in Eastern Connecticut. We believe cancer care belongs in your community, giving you higher quality at a lower cost, a team that treats you as a person, not a number, access to the latest clinical trials, and all the services you need in one convenient location. To learn more, visit echoassociates.org. Henry Wan III, a former board member of the Connecticut Port Authority and founder of Seabury PFRA LLC, has been fined $18,500 by the Connecticut Office of State Ethics to resolve allegations he violated both the Code of Ethics for public officials and the Code of Ethics for lobbyists. Wan was appointed to the Port Authority Board in 2016 and later that year founded Seabury Maritime and in 2017 and 2018 sought to use his position to gain contracts from the Port Authority. The investigation alleges that Wan attempted to influence Port Authority staff and other CPA members to benefit his new company. Wan admitted he had a conflict of interest between his service on the Authority Board and his substantial involvement with Seabury Maritime. Wan did not, however, admit liability when signing the agreement with the Office of State Ethics. The fine of $18,500 is one of the highest issued by them to date. This is the third fine against Seabree Maritime that also involves the Connecticut Port Authority. Seabree Maritime also received over $500,000 from the Port Authority for a controversial success fee for finding a new port operator for their state pier project in New London, a fee that is still being investigated by various Connecticut state agencies. Investments in education and health are needed to bolster Connecticut's children, a new annual report finds. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service takes a look at the results. In the Annie E. Casey Foundation's Kids Count Data Book, the state's overall ranking for child well-being has slightly declined in the last year. It ranks the same in education, but has dropped in terms of kids' health. And the number of young children not enrolled in preschool has inched up from 35% between 2012 and 2016 to 39% by 2021. Emily Byrne with Connecticut Voices for Children says state investments in early childhood education are needed. Instituting more supports for early care, for providers to be compensated for their role delivering the educational building block our youngest residents need and a child tax credit for providing more affordability for parents in terms of offsetting the high cost of raising children in our state. She notes affordable housing is another area in need of state investment. Rising inflation has led to high rents and high eviction rates. Last year saw more than 21,000 evictions in the state according to the Connecticut Fair Housing Coalition. The General Assembly considered legislation to establish fair and equitable housing opportunities but it didn't pass. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. The United States Coast Guard Research and Development Center in New London has a new person in charge of it. The change of command happens every three years at the facility, which researches, tests and evaluates technologies in support of the Coast Guard's major missions. Captain Dan Keane is the outgoing commander of the center and applauded the ingenuity of his scientists and staff based on the size of their operation against other much larger military services. We've proved repeatedly that we can provide champagne research on a bare budget. What other labs where working groups offer for millions of dollars, we can often reproduce with our own people and own assets for thousands in a configuration that is very close to being ready for Coast Guard use. Now that's a value proposition. Captain Michael Chen is the new center commander and comes from a background of cybersecurity and was previously based at the Coast Guard headquarters in Washington, D.C. The Coast Guard has embraced the critical need to leverage technology and data systems. We are challenging outdated assumptions 
and we are working to innovate and solve our most pressing organizational challenges. And I absolutely see the research that we are conducting here by the wonderful researchers and scientists and staff to be critical to the Coast Guard's success. Chen replaces Captain Keen, who took over the centre during the COVID-19 pandemic and helped to celebrate the centre's 50th anniversary earlier this year. Keen will now retire from the Coast Guard after 24 years of service. And the latest Virginia-class submarine, Iowa, made by General Dynamics Electric Boat at their Groton shipyard, was christened recently. The christening took place in the shipyard's Virginia-class assembly building in front of an audience of more than 3,000 people, including electric boat shipbuilders, members of the ship's crew, U.S. Navy personnel and government officials. The event was also viewed live at numerous watch parties across the state of Iowa. The ship's sponsor is Christy Vilsack, an Iowa educator and advisor with a 50-year career in education and public service. Iowa is the 24th submarine in the Virginia class designed for the full range of 21st century missions and is the 12th submarine in the class to be delivered by electric boat. The submarine will be the fourth U.S. Navy warship to carry the name Iowa and succeeds the battleship USS Iowa BB-61 commissioned in 1943. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.